Today is President's Day, so you know I gotta give a little tribute to the greatest president of my lifetime, Donald J. Trump. A man who ended endless wars, a man who secured our border, the man who had our economy humming, the man who started Twitter wars but no actual wars, the man who they relentlessly worked to destroy but yet stands tall anyway. Sadly, our current president is none of those things. Well, actually, if we're being honest, our current president is in his 12th year and his name is Barack Obama. But I guess, technically speaking, it's still Joe Biden who holds the title. And though I did not vote for Joe, and I will never vote for Joe, he is still the president, if in name only. And because it is President's Day, it's fitting to pay him tribute. History is watching. History is watching. History is watching. To build chips, the three nano chips, the three nano chip, chips and the three nano, and you know what I'm saying. My memory is so bad I let you speak. Anybody think climate's not a problem? Raise your hand. The beer brewed here, it is used to make the brew beer. <laughs> oh, Earth Rider, thanks for the Great Lakes. I wonder why. So with that, happy President's Day to all of our presidents, even the really bad ones. So they've made entire reality shows centered around parents behaving badly, dance moms, toddlers and tiaras, just to name a couple. But we all know that stage parents aren't the only thorns in the side of childhood. What about sports parents? You know the kind, the ones that get just way too into the game, like chill, it's t-ball. And while some sideline parents are indeed well-meaning, could they actually be doing more harm to their children's mental health than they even realize? Well, my next guest says yes, and he's actually helped run a manual on that very topic. There's a lot of good people trying to do good things, but there's just so much going on. And the coaches are exhausted, the parents are exhausted, and the players are having this experience that, that doesn't look like a lot of fun. And I'm seeing that from kids crying, I'm seeing that from kids quitting and the way things are shaking out. How are we missing the opportunity to use sports, baseball in this example, as an opportunity to teach a kid how to deal with failure in a real way. Instead of obsess over the achievements of state rankings or what your team's record was the year prior. So parents, I bet I've got your attention now. Joining me now is retired MLB player, friend to my husband, and three athletics owner, Travis Snyder. Travis, it's great to have you. Um, I'm really excited to talk about this because after we spent some time in Vegas at our little Players Alumni Association event, I got really into looking into what you're doing, and I think it's super important, so I want to just jump right into it. Why put together a manual? Why put together really an entire course for parents on childhood athletics? Well, to be clear, my partner Seth Taylor is the author of the Parent Guidebook, but after reading that guidebook, which was originally written for soccer, I approached Seth about purchasing the IP for that product and then creating something for multiple sports because as you alluded to earlier we got a lot of parents and they care a ton about their kids and most of them want the best for their children but don't understand how much pressure they're actually feeling on the sidelines or in a car before and after practice or a game uh, and really difficult to navigate those conversations 
So I want to kind of dig into this because I think there's you know two schools of thought. That's parents that are involved, they must really care about their kids, and then there's the other half of it that parents are way too involved and they care way too much. They're trying to live through their children. There's got to be a happy medium in there somewhere, but help me give parents some tools to navigate what they should be doing. Yeah, I think you hit it. You got uh, parents on both ends of the spectrum. I think most parents fall somewhere in the middle. Um, I think step number one is creating awareness as to what we're bringing into that relationship with our children based off past experiences with coaches, with parents, with the community that we grew up in and the experiences we have in sports. Uh, and then getting deeper into the conversations that are most important, right, of giving your child space and, and allowing them to have a voice in that conversation, tell you how they actually feel without you asking a question as simple as, did you have fun today, right? And I think that's a it's an honest question that parents ask thinking that it's going to be lighter than, hey, you should have done this or you should have done that. But the nuances to these conversations really develop uh, a feedback loop, right, for kids when they get in the car after practice or after a game. They think there's an expectation that they had to have fun just based off the way that parents asking that question. So I think ultimately what we're trying to create here through the guidebook and then as we build out uh, more online content for parents is just basic parent education into what children are experiencing on, on the field and what parents are experiencing on the sideline. So how do you approach it with kids that, you know, a lot of parents want their kids to play sports. It's a good thing for young people to play sports and be on a team. But at what point... Are parents pushing too hard? How do they recognize when that point is? Maybe their kids don't want to play sports or maybe they need to push their kids because their kids want to quit. I think it's really hard for parents to figure out what they're actually supposed to be doing. What would you tell them to look for? What, how to gauge it if they're pushing too hard, not pushing hard enough? Yeah, as a parent of three, this is something we deal with in, in my household on a regular basis and, and try to figure out, number one, kids have different personality types, right? So we have to be aware of what kind of child, uh, what kind of personality that they have, but ultimately understanding the developmental years, right? Zero to 10 years old, kids are, are trying to figure out what is my identity, what makes me safe and what makes me loved. And I think as parents are really looking at the opportunity for kids to get into youth sports, it's great. I, I would always encourage parents to start uh, at whatever age with friends or with cousins or with, with people that your children are familiar with to create that safer space. Obviously, if you know a coach and, and the child has a relationship there, that's going to make it easier. But that's not always the case. And I think mo most importantly, as a parent, when you do sign your child up for sports, when you do take them to practice and when you do take them to their games, observe their body language, observe the way that they're acting. Uh, did they Are they looking back to you on the sidelines for approval? That's pretty normal at that at younger age group that we're talking about. Uh, but understanding if your kid's out there and they don't look like they're having fun, it shouldn't be the pressure the parent feels to be a good teammate and not quit halfway through the season in these early years, right? As kids get older uh, and we'll dive into more age specific stuff as we get deeper into the content, but really focusing on that zero to 10 age, don't force your kids to do anything they don't want to do, have intentional conversations with them, give them that space to have a voice and teach them, right? How to deal with the feelings and emotions that they're having. And if there's a way to continue to keep playing and find a plan that works for them, great. But you also got to be able to walk away from a game or a practice and just go to the park. Cause it's, sometimes that's just what the kid wants to do. That's what makes them safe. And that's what's going to develop ultimately a better connection with your child so that later on down the road, if they do try sports or they do get in trouble or they're having something going on at school, they're going to know that they can approach you in a way where you're actually going to listen. I want to talk about something you mentioned earlier, and that's young people, even high school, college, professional athletes having their identity wrapped up in the sport that 
they play. And then eventually when that comes to an end, because it will come to an end, not knowing what to do after that, I've obviously experienced that firsthand with my own husband as he ended his career and figured out what he was going to do next and went to broadcasting. Now he's in coaching. He loves what he's doing now, but was in an entire room full of people at the Alumni Association where players did not know what to do next and a lot of them struggling with mental health because of that. What are the things in childhood that could help later in life as people transition away from pro athletics? being conscious of how your child is building their identity and understanding that we as a culture, right, have created the achievement identity mindset where whatever we achieve, the accolades, being good at a sport, being smart in school, right? I think a lot of parents want to celebrate those types of accomplishments and achievements without realizing, right? If you read the book, Growth Mindset by Carol Dweck, the growth mindset is praising effort, not results, right? And there's scientific studies to back up her whole thesis behind that book that she wrote, but understanding how to build that foundation of of unconditional love with your child and being able to help them understand what skill sets that they have, right, that they can look to leverage as they get older and eventually stop playing sports, but ultimately creating an identity that isn't just tied to being a baseball player or tied to being the valedictorian or whatever their success may be or, or not, right? And I think kids are struggling with that especially as they enter those high school years, because it's such a pressure packed experience there. If you're popular, if you're on the, on the sports team or whatever, and that becomes a very difficult road for, for kids to navigate, right. As they're trying to figure out what I want to do when I grow up. And I think most parents listening to this, right. Haven't had the same job their entire life. Not everybody was lucky like your husband, JP and I to get to play major league baseball and, and achieve their childhood dream. But also as we've experienced and you saw firsthand in, in Vegas, it's difficult, right? When we tie everything to that title, to that identity of being a baseball player or whatever profession we choose. Let's talk about learning how to fail because that's something that carries through life, whether you're an athlete or not, but especially with athletes that are very good all the way through high school, maybe even all the way through college, maybe even the beginning of their professional career. But then at some point, they're going to experience failure. And a lot of these young athletes don't know how to deal with failure. Their ego doesn't know how to deal with failure. How does that go back to childhood? And what would you tell parents on how to manage that? Yeah, I think as you as you look back at those developmental years, we're creating core memories, right? And kids are, are, are developing a relationship with their parents, with sports, with whatever they're doing, and understanding how things that happen in that early childhood developmental years end up in your subconscious, right? As you become a teenager and you become adult. And I think raising awareness to what the difference is between your conscious mind, and your subconscious mind, and then being able to give parents, kids, and coaches the tools, right? To be able to explore what those triggers are, right? That make your ego want to either seek out the glory of being the best player on the team or vice versa, wanting to hide and not be the person who comes up in the game with a big moment uh, on the line for your team. So being able to explore those things in a healthy way, right? Without the judgment uh, and the shame that we all feel as children when we just don't figure something out right away and continuing to reaffirm, right? With your child, if you're not good at something, the first question I ask my child is how much have you practiced, right? And that's just continuing to reaffirm that feedback loop that if I want to be great, right? Or I want to be good at anything that I've decided to do from math to baseball or whatever, I have to practice. And if I don't figure it out right away, sometimes the best question to ask is who, not how. I want to talk about grit now because I think it's a complicated subject and topic. You know, you mentioned on on your Instagram and your company talking about grit. Everybody wants their kids to have grit. Everybody wants to have grit 
themselves, but there can be dangerous levels of maybe grit. But also, on the other hand, you've got the everyone gets a trophy participation trophy culture. So how do you manage two of those things? And is there a happy middle ground there? And if so, how do you find it? I think just understanding at what age, right, these things become appropriate and inappropriate and realizing that participating in something, it should be celebrated, right? And we can talk about the the pros and cons of participation trophies or even the trophies that we're giving kids, right, at eight, nine years old when they go win the weekend tournament, whatever, wherever they're going and whatever state they're playing. Ultimately, again, if I'm a parent, right, listening to this and I want to take something away, it's crazy effort and understand that if we're going to create more grit, if we're going to create more resilient within our kids, the foundation of their identity has to be solid. And as I can attest and JP can attest and a lot of professional athletes out there, we feel like we build this foundation and we we have all this success and we're celebrated along the way in our career, but then get to a point and realize it's more like an elephant balancing on a pool cue. And we've done a great job of convincing the people around us, the scouts, the organizations, the people, uh, you know, all through our childhood to say, man, this kid's mature. He's really good. He's really focused, all those things. But eventually those chickens are going to come home right to the roost. And and you're going to have to deal with the things that have been manifesting deep down within your subconscious for all these years. And I think, again, the more we can bring awareness to these things, especially how they start to formulate in childhood age years, and then really be able to focus when kids get into high school, right? Getting serious about pursuing a career as a division one or a professional athlete and your kid, right? Being the one driving that bus. And I think that's the hardest thing for parents is because we want our kids to have success. We want them to go out there and achieve great things, right? But at the end of the day, the impact and the type of person that they are is more important than if you went to a division one school or division three school, you only played high school baseball. And I think that's something that's difficult, right? Is we're always looking to achieve and we're always looking to grow and learn, focusing more on that growth and learning and less on the achievement. My next guest is going to talk about the whole wild, wild west of NIL and the name image likeness. And now you add money into the mix. So I just want to get your take on that. Just real quick, because I know that that really wasn't a thing when when you were playing in college or when my husband was playing in college, they weren't making money. In fact, they couldn't make money. So now that you add in the whole money game to all this and the influencer status and the Instagram and the TikTok and the endorsement deals, do you think that that is beneficial, advantageous or dangerous for young people as they're coming up through sports? I think there's a lot of ways to answer that question. I I think at the end of the day, when money becomes uh, a part of the picture, it makes things more complicated. And when you think about 18-year-old kids looking at a million dollars, I can relate to that. I sounded out of high school as a first-round pick for $1.7 million, right? You could Google that. How I handled that at 18 years old, luckily, I had people around me, advisors outside of just my parents uh, who didn't have the skill or, or experience to really understand what that meant and how to manage that. But really understanding at the end of the day, kids have to make a choice on what they feel is best for them and their futures. And I think it becomes very difficult for a kid to decide between college and professional uh, at some point because you have the opportunity to make so much money in college now. But I also understand, right, as a business, college football is is a massive, massive uh revenue producer and organizations and universities are are making a killing in terms of revenue in that standpoint. So at what point is there a fair share of the pie? I don't have the the clear answer to that, but I do think we're very early in this process. So it's going to be interesting for me to observe this as we go and kind of see how things start to evolve over these next few years. 
More money, more problems. Kids are flashy now, though. Professional athletes are very flashy now. Maybe they always have been, but I don't know. Things seem like they're changing a little bit with the uh, influencer lifestyle that people are coupling with professional sports or collegiate sports. So it's going to be interesting. Where can parents who are watching this go to get all of the tools that they need to dive deeper into this, especially as it relates to different age groups, different sports? Where do they find it? Yeah, check us out online, www.3athletics.com. All social media handles are 3A Athletics. Uh, so you can check us out on social or on our website. we got a ton of videos up there. Our first product, the Parent Guidebook, is available. And we have coaches' guidebooks coming in the near futures. And then we're working on some athlete journals as well. I love it. Well, thank you for coming on, Travis. I appreciate it so much, and we hope to see you soon, maybe next year in wherever the heck they have that, maybe Nashville. I'm rooting for Nashville. I'm rooting for Nashville too, Tommy. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Thanks so much. I'll talk to you soon. Transitioning now from youth sports right into the business of sports and those three letters that forever changed athletics, N-I-L. For those who don't know, that stands for name, image, and likeness. It all started back in the late 2000s with a class action lawsuit and a simple question, should athletes be paid? Well, for decades, NIL wasn't a thing and strict NCAA rules prevented college athletes from being paid or compensated or else risk eligibility. But that's long gone now that we have athletes like Livy Dunn, Bronny James and Angel Reese bringing in millions. Now, I'm not knocking the hustle, but it's worth asking if NIL has gone too far and turned college athletes into more of endorsement pimps and influencers than student athletes. Joining me now to have that discussion and debate is head of On3 Elite, Grant Ferking. So I want you to really sell NIL to me because I'm a little bit skeptical. I believe in the hustle. I believe people should get paid if they can get paid. But I think it's turned some of these young athletes into living monsters. So I want you to tell me why this whole process, why this, all these changes, why they're good for collegiate athletes and for athletics in general. Yeah, and understandably so. It, and you know, I was on all sides of it. I played before NIL, I played during NIL, and now obviously I'm working you know, so closely in the space after the fact. Um, but if you take a step back and, and you put yourself in Tommy's 17, 18, 19, 21 year old shoes, and you were getting paid six figures to go play a sport while also being a college student, going out on the weekends and all the things that a college kid does, you know, you're gonna mess up and make mistakes and probably spend money on stupid things. And in the, the day, you're gonna learn from it. And what's a better time to learn from making you know, mistakes with your money and all those different things at that age? Um, what, the, what the crazy aspect is, is everyone thinks it's destroying the locker room. And it's a downfall of college sports. Mm -hmm. If you look over the last two years, especially college football, but if you look at college basketball too, men's and women's, you look at the tournament TV rights deals have just come out that are monsters, historical. You look at TV ratings and football, those are through the roof. The game has gotten more exciting to the fan. One of those aspects is NIL's brought more parity to the sport. It used to be two or three teams standing at the top every year, and now you've seen some elite teams over the last decade that aren't even making the college football playoff. You see teams that you haven't heard have any type of success in the last decade that are in the college football playoff now. So what it's done is these fan bases and these huge endemic brands of college football have gone in and found ways to find success utilizing NIL to build their rosters on top of all the many resources they have to go and compete at the highest level now and find success. And success is measured in college football by how many wins you have. Yeah. 
I understand what you're saying, and I, I know that these colleges and other entities are making a lot of money off of these young athletes, so they should have some skin in the game. I believe yeah. in that. I just don't know, though, with the way it currently stands. I know that there's obviously lawsuits that are trying to change some of this, but it does kind of feel like the wild, wild west. Uh, people don't really know what the guidelines are. I'm not sure the athletes really know what the guidelines are. The schools really know what the guidelines are. Yeah. The NCAA doesn't really know what the guidelines are, and it feels like it's all a little bit arbitrary. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you think there needs to be some changes. Well, here's the thing. The NCAA is clueless, right? And they have been for, for years. Look at the pending litigation they have right now. You have the Tennessee-Virginia lawsuit. Mm -hmm. You also have pending litigation that has to do in a more monetary regard that would that would bankrupt the NCAA. Um, you know, House for NCAA has, has class action now, and so you know that could that could cause up to four billion dollars um, in in basically payments to athletes since I think it's 2016 um, that they would have to back pay to athletes for not being able to monetize on their name, image, and likeness. Um, you know, it, it is the wild west, but. You and I here are both capitalists, and, and we believe that capitalist markets always succeed and always find their way, right? We've seen that in NIL. There were kids, you know, right when they came out that were making a bunch of money, turned out to be a bust. They, they were acted foolish. They didn't pan out to what people thought they were going to be. Maybe they did something stupid on the weekend and got arrested or put a stupid tweet or Instagram post out there and lost their brand deals and lost their money. Well, there's also been kids out there that have found their way, came on the radar late, and by who they are and what they do, have found their way and are doing great now. And so I think what the, what the great thing is, is while there's very lim limited parameters and guardrails around the whole NIL era, the NCA, you know, is trying to poke around and try to enforce. And what they do is they basically put out 500 words of a, of a guideline, one page or PDF, blast it out to the member schools and say, follow along with these guidelines. We're getting to the point now where most of these schools have been like, you know, what do we go to for our guidance? You guys change your mind every six months on what you wanted it to be. You wanted it to be the states decide what the guidelines are. So all the states went out and put basically the same parameters around. You can't do a deal with a vice. You know, you can't have pay to play, all these different things. Well, everything was so loose and so subjective that different schools and different states started finding different loopholes mm -hmm. pretty much to go and find recruiting advantages. Who's the most important person in the state behind the governor? Probably a head football coach, right? And if they're winning, probably, the more, <laughs> probably more important than the governor if they're winning, right? And so all these, all these head coaches basically started lobbying with the state legislatures to go and pass this, this legislation, you know, so they could start offering kids, you know, NIL deals in high school. So it induced them to come and, and basically come to their school. Well, the NCAA then had a problem with that. And they started walking back and trying to enforce rules that they left up to the state and then, you know, put a new one pager out there and then tried to enforce that on something that they didn't have six months ago. And so it's been crazy. But, but when I tell you that, you know, a lot of people call it the Wild West because they see the headlines. They see, you know, the mainstream media say it's the downfall of college sports and it's all this and it's all that, which isn't true. A lot of this is kids just working through it. These coaches and these collectives who are the ones paying the athletes finding, you know what, maybe it's not best to pay this kid this, you know, dollar amount. Maybe we wait a year, see if he pans out, if he's even here, gone in the transfer portal, and then we go and pay him. And so at the end of the day, just like anything, I mean, people learn we're two and a half years into this thing and we're already in such a better spot we are right now than we were you know, even a year ago. So let's talk about that transfer situation. So I asked my husband about it who went to Tennessee who played college baseball. And I said, so what do you think about it? He's like, yeah, I get people need to make money. But he said that that's because he's a, obviously a Tennessee fan. Yeah. He said there's no loyalty to your school anymore. You don't, you don't like bleed for your school yeah. anymore. You bleed for who's gonna 
get you the most money. Yeah, for sure. So do you think that that might be part of the problem here where college sports used to be, it used to be, and I wouldn't say that it's like the innocent sacred space, but it, it used to be more so like that where you just right. had real loyalty for your team and everybody came together yeah. and now it's like bought and paid for. You know, I see it both, I, I truly do see it both ways because there, there's, a, there's a part of me that is saying, you know, these kids go through the recruiting process. They sit on the couch with their mom and dad while the head coach comes in and sells them a vision, sells the vision to the kid, sells the vision to mom and dad. I'm gonna take care of your son for the next four years. Here's what we're gonna do. Here's the vision we have. Here's the culture we have. And that coach can get up and leave and go get his $15 million in severance pay and go take another job and there's no punishment for him, right? Mm -hmm. And so that kid, you know, everyone wants to use a line, you know, commit to a school, not a coach, right? Because, right. you know, coaching jobs are so transactional, right? And so, but that, that's truly hard, right? That's the easy thing to say. At the same time, why can't a kid, for whatever reason, go and explore other options? Now, I am a, a huge proponent of you know, playing for the name on the front of your jersey, not the back, because that's why people love college football. Same reason mm -hmm. a lot of people hate the NFL, right? Because right, they think it's exactly. all individualized. People love college football for what? Tailgates, marching band. You know, they have skin in the game like because the they're an alumni. Band? Do people like marching bands? I like bands? the marching band. Okay. I want to be out there on the field before the game to actually take. hear them. So yeah, I do like the marching band. Um, but yeah, controversial take. But um, you know, what, what I would say is people like college football for reasons that they don't like the NFL, right? Because yeah. they may have been an alumni, they grew up in the state, their family, you know, may have graduated from there. And so why, while I understand that it is a transactional move for, for the kids as much as it is for the coaches, I also want players to love the school that they're playing for and love the pageantry and love the tradition and everything that comes along with being a college football player. And, and honestly, being in the locker room, you know, just 18 months ago when I was playing during the NIL era, I never saw one, one person, you know, and, and if there are, I could count them on one hands and they weed themselves out that were prioritizing their individual interests over, you know, the, the, the interests of the university as a whole and the team as a whole. And honestly, if there are, they're so easy to spot they weed themselves out anyway. So let's talk about kind of the gender divide in this. Yeah. Um, I looked at the website and I saw, you know, the rankings there. Yeah. And it's a pretty good mix of of men and women. Yeah. But let's let's just be honest about it. A lot of the the ladies <laughs> that are on there, on there, I'm sure for their athletic achievements and prowess. Some maybe on there because they're pretty girls. Mm -hmm. And they might be making a lot of their money through taking pictures of their yeah, prettiness. For sure. So, you know, do you see an issue with that at all? Do you think that it's kind of, I don't know, it's maybe sexualizing athletes a little bit much now that this whole era has come in and people well, are here's turning the, that here's into a different kind of business? Well, I see exactly what you're saying. And, and it's the crazy thing about this whole NIL era is it got, when people think of NIL, which isn't a, a new concept, it's a new concept to college athletes, but... NIL is basically just influencer marketing, brand mm -hmm. deals, name, image, and likeness, and attaching it, monetizing off it. What we saw was majority of the male athletes out there are getting majority of their dollars because of who they are and what they do as a player. Mm -hmm. Your average Joe walking on the sidewalk doesn't know who the starting wide receiver is at Auburn this year. No. Now, every Auburn fan knows who they are, and, and every coach across the country, because they're the best wide receiver in the country, and they're going to go win you a lot of ball games, and everyone's going to be happy. Now... What we've seen on the female side of NIL is they are the most marketable. So if you have you seen some of the sports from gymnastics, women's basketball, softball, volleyball, like you, you might not be getting as many dollars necessarily for who you are and what you do as a as an athlete, but they have utilized their platforms and are striking massive brand deals. 
way more than the male athletes are. Is that because of the way they look, though? Well, it's, a, it's because th- these brands are actually seeing an ROI when they go and promote their product. You know, if you're, if you're Caitlin Clark at Iowa, who just broke the record last night for most points scored of any women's basketball player in history, brands want to work with her. State Farm did a massive deal with her because when she posts something, it actually resonates. Every women's basketball player is going to go buy the new shoes she goes and puts on her story or the new socks she goes and puts on her story. If your average you know, male athlete who might have three pictures on his Instagram <laughs> never posts and isn't engaging, nobody's going to know who that guy is except you know, the passionate fan that follows that guy. So all of the brands in the space have started closing in when they say, hey, what do you do in the NIL space? Have you guys explored spending in that space at all outside of professional marketing in you know, NBA, uh, NFL, MLB, all that stuff? They're like, uh, we, we're finding our money working with female athletes because they promote our product, they know how to do it well, they get ROI, and the people that follow those athletes are, are following them because it's not just who they are, like they have true interest in what they're posting about. Yeah. No, I get it. I mean, influencer culture has just gone crazy anyway, yeah. so I guess I athletes should be able to take part in, in all of it. It's just gotten, I think it's more of a, a cultural problem just with young people and the validation they're getting from their social media followings and from sure. the money that they can make on the yeah. endorsement thing. I mean, they've taken the Kardashian model and they've amped it up to a level That's that it. we've never seen before, and it's probably going to get worse. So I guess in closing, I would say, what, what do you tell the young athlete out there that's coming up through high school? They're really excited about all this. What advice do you give them on how to navigate this space? You know what? It's, it's funny because I've, I've gotten asked that question a bunch of times specifically since this NIL era has taken place. And all my thoughts on everything based on legislation and kind of how the era has kind of gone on this roller coaster, some of, some of my you know, advice in that regard has changed. My advice to a you know, high school kid you know, male or female, that is a freshman or sophomore that wants to go play ball at the highest of levels, wants to go follow their dream, um, but also wants to go make money and, and, you know, be able to capitalize on the opportunities they have, is don't chase the dollar. Like, truly don't. When you do that, whether it's, you know, in athletics, whether it's in career, you get so caught up in the transactional aspects of it. Look, I was an entrepreneur, and I thought one of the biggest lies of all time was either making or measuring success by how much money you make or measuring failure by how much money you don't make. Because that's just not true. And, you know, with a lot of these kids out there, you know, I think they see the dollar amounts out there. They see the headlines. Oh, this guy got paid this to go to this school. This girl got this to do this deal. And, you know, it's not an apples to apples situation every time. If you go follow your dream, master your craft, and go and work hard at it, you will be rewarded from it in some regard. And you see that in this era. When you go, you know, perform and you have success in it, college athletics is a transactional business. So when you produce for someone everyone succeeds. And when you succeed, you get rewarded for it. And in that era, it's now monetary. And so that's my biggest piece of advice is just don't get caught up in chasing the dollar because so many kids do that. It's an easy thing to do. You see those dollar signs and any 17, 18 year old kid, I was like that. I'm sure you probably would have been at that age too. Um, But there's so much more to it. You got to enjoy the college experience. You got to go get your degree. And how cool is it that you can go and make money on top of that too? And it's all additive. Last thing I want to ask you, um, just since you mentioned the degree. Yeah. Do you think that um, college athletics, and this isn't because of NIL, it's just in general. Do you think that these athletes that are going to basically play a sport, do you think they're getting the educational experience that maybe they should be getting? And what would you tell them as far as how important that degree or that education actually is 
to their future because if you ask most athletes, they tell you they're going to college for the sport they play, for sure. not whatever BS major their advisor told them to major <laughs> in because it was the easiest possible thing. Right. And they take classes like history of rock and roll. Rocks okay? for jocks, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, it's, so you, that's actually my favorite question you've asked so far. You know why? Because it's amazing how many kids I've seen that now that they're actually making money are taking classes to actually learn and apply it. It's amazing. University of Tennessee, now I favor that because I graduated from there, they're the first school to have an NIL class that athletes could take that you would, as long as you performed all your credits, you'd also get a, a minor in business, no matter what your major track was. And it was everything from tax prep, financial literacy, and all they did, they would bring in former athletes, they'd bring in agents, basically to sit down and tell these kids, look, here's what you're making right now, here is what you could do 30, 40, 50 years from now when you set this aside. You, you start a Roth IRA. You do this. You do that. And, you know, look, are there always going to be kids that's going to go one year out the other? Absolutely. But that class has been full ever since they offered it starting two years ago when they first did, all with athletes and, and predominantly football and basketball. And so it's amazing to see that athletes, and I was like that being an entrepreneur, I actually liked being able to go into a class while I was an entrepreneur in college and directly apply what I was learning the very next day for whatever came at me kind of in the real world, right? And so with these kids, I mean, they're making significant six, seven figures, you know, at, at 18 to 20 years old. So now they're getting to actually go and learn it. Some of which, you know, come from, you know, great backgrounds, some of which come from no backgrounds and have no guidance to fall back on, right? Mm -hmm. And so for them to go and learn it, be able to apply it while being in an educational space to have people kind of sidecar and walk along with them, it's actually pretty cool. Now, are there also going to be people that go and are just there to play the sport, go there for three years and hit the league? Absolutely. That's never going to end. But the fact that they have the opportunity now to learn in kind of a realistic sense to go and apply it, and that's all you can ask for. I think all college kids should learn about money. High school kids also should learn about money. So I think that's a great piece of advice, great guidance. Where can people go to check out what you're doing and see how much these athletes are making? Yeah, absolutely. On3.com, um, that's where we're at. We cover everything from the, you know, the passionate fans of high school and college sports. We also take a deep dive in recruiting and Island Transfer Portal headquartered right here in Nashville, Tennessee. So I love it. Well, thank you for being here. Thanks and for thanks me. for giving us all that information. Maybe you've converted me. I'm now a little bit a uh, little bit less skeptical than I am. And, and I agree with a lot of what you said. So we appreciate it and thanks for being here. I love it. Thanks for having me. Well, that does it for this special sports edition of Tommy Lahren is Fearless from Nashville. God bless and take care.